Hey peeps, this is Pat and Rod Save the World. For the week ending 24 January 2015, I'm one of your trustworthy hosts, Pat Brown. I'm Roderick Makem, I won't speak to my trustworthiness or otherwise. Smart move, Rod, mm. smart move. Close to the chest, that's how he keeps his cards. Mm -hmm. So the three topics that we're going to discuss today, um, maybe we should lead off with American Sniper. Yeah, why not? Okay, um, yeah, number one, American Sniper and the propaganda-ness thereof. Uh, we're going to talk about the Saudi king, may he not rest in peace if yeah. there is an afterlife. Burn in hell, you fat fuck. <laughs> And the third thing we're going to discuss, um, what was number three, man? I've actually forgotten. It slipped my mind. Uh, death penalties. We're going to talk about death penalties in foreign countries um, with the events in uh, Indonesia, uh, a country of, well, frankly, fairly uncivilized people from what I can tell. Um, no, I'm, I'm deadly serious, and I'll get to that later. <laughs> All right, we'll get to that. <laughs> I actually, I, I quite like Indonesians that I've met, except for the ones who robbed me. Yeah, um, sure. But uh, I found them to be very friendly and nice, mostly. I'm sure that they are. And I always, I suppose, I should just have that global caveat when I'm discussing matters of policy in foreign countries. Yeah, I know they're not all agreeing with it, but at the same time, they are apparently the world's largest Muslim democracy. And um, I suppose I, I take them at their word so far as things like the death penalty are concerned. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so anyway, American Sniper. American Sniper. Now, we should uh, start this segment off by saying neither of us have seen this movie. Yes, and I think that's an important <laughs> point. I mean, never let it be said that Pat and Rod let complete ignorance about uh, a subject get in the way of having an opinion on it. Um, you know what, though? I subscribe to the um, Khmer Rouge way of thinking, which is that all knowledge could be corrupted by actually doing research, mm. and that we should begin at year zero and form our opinions uncorrupted by the influences of the uh, corrupt West. That's a damn good, uh, <laughs> damn good influence you've got there. A, it doesn't matter what you come up with so far as a ridiculous principle is concerned, you can find a historical figure to back it. Damn right you can. Um, now, uh, yeah, so neither of us have seen American Sniper, but um, I think when it comes to something like a movie, uh, everyone makes decisions on whether or not they're going to go and see something um, based on, you know, their opinions on what they think uh, what they think about that movie before having seen it. So I don't actually see a problem with, uh, with talking about it having not seen it. In the same yeah. way that someone... If, uh, if I was having a conversation with someone at work, for instance, and they were saying, oh, are you going to go and see American Sniper? I'd say no. And if they asked why not, I would give them my reasons why not. So yeah. And the, the other issue is you shouldn't have to vote with your dollars for a thing yeah. in order to have a comment about it. Yeah. And I've seen the trailer. I've read reviews. Um, and frankly, I think that that's enough to work with so far as this discussion is yeah. concerned. As in, uh, yeah, I, I read some reviews and some articles about uh, about the movie. When I was, uh, like from the get-go, I was uh, hesitant to go and watch it. Mm. And then the more I read about it and the more articles about the guy and the more reviews, glowing or otherwise, about the movie itself, the more I just didn't want to go and see it. And I actually have difficulty um, not seeing it. I would like to see it really, and I know this sounds pretentious, but I'll fucking say it anyway. On a meta level, I'd really like to just go and sort of watch propaganda in action. You know, that's an interesting thing to me. Um, but look, I've, I've consoled myself by watching interviews of the chap on which it's based. Yeah. One of the most interesting... So we should start out by saying, if you don't know about this movie, it's based on a guy called Chris Kyle, uh, America's, historically speaking, most lethal sniper. I think it was 160 confirmed kills. It and was by about that, yeah. Confirmed kills. Um, basically, someone else had to be witness to it and fill out the paperwork on it. Um, he claims up to 255 kills, but there are 160 verified. Uh, so it's based on his activities in uh, Iraq, and I think particularly on his experiences in Fallujah, uh, which was a major battle during the Iraq war, uh, where essentially they turned an entire city into an evacuation zone. And uh, anyone who was a male over the age of 18 in that zone was considered fair game. Uh, so a sniper, obviously, just to sort of give you the basic basics, 
basic, basic background of what they do is they tend to sit behind the front line, um, which the grunts, in America's case, the Marines, are at, and they sort of oversee the battlefield and try and pick off enemy snipers and um, enemies who are moving into positions to assault the, uh, the Marines. Yeah. So that's what this guy did. That was his um, role. And apparently, I don't actually have a it. problem with that role. Uh, snipers. Know, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of people, Michael Moore, for instance, has talked about yeah. snipers being cowards. And I, I don't actually see, uh, you know, from a, a military level of things, um, a, an issue with it. I don't see how it's all that much removed from, say, a guy manning a, um, a machine gun in a helicopter or uh, someone flying ahead, dropping a bomb. Um, well, Michael Moore in is in of himself a propagandist yeah. of sorts. And he knows oh, that you can appeal uh, to certain people by using this rhetoric of what's cowardly and what's brave on a battlefield. I mean, I wouldn't have expected Michael Moore to be the first guy to have strong opinions about that, but I think when it's a convenient thing, he does. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually. We haven't seen much of Michael Moore in the news for a few years. He hadn't, uh... That's true. Look, I don't mind him, and to be honest oh, with you... he's done some great stuff, I, but he's yeah. also done some... He's a, look, he's yeah. a propagandist. Yeah. And I don't mind having them on both sides. Um, I just really take with a grain of salt anything that the man says. Yeah. Um, because the other thing is he's particularly clever in the way that he presents certain facts and doesn't present other facts. Yeah. And I caught him out on a few things in that respect. Um, and so you can never say, strictly speaking, he's incorrect, but you could definitely say that he's misrepresenting. So you could never sue him for what he says, <laughs> pure defamation, but it's just, you know, it's not balanced, that's for damn sure. Yeah. And, that, and that annoys the fuck out of me. I mean, where like, there are a few voices out there that I consider to be very objective and not sort of propagandists, and they're sort of interested in getting to the truth of the matter. Yeah. I, I consider Sam Harris to be one of them. Um, I'm tipping my hand there a little bit. But yeah, yeah. I think that's what annoys me most about Michael Moore. And like I say, I, I enjoy some of the stuff that he's done, but it it annoys me when someone uh, takes really important issues and purports to be getting to the truth of them mm. when he knows that he isn't. Like he he must know that he he's misrepresenting things. I don't know. It's hard to understand the psychology of the tribal advocate. Yeah. Because I think that the power of those people is that they actually do believe their propaganda. And I think on the spectrum of self-awareness, such people don't tend to fall on the sort of uh, high self-awareness quotient part of the spectrum. <laughs> you know what I mean? But there See, are very... I, I would say that propagandists would fall fairly high on that spectrum because surely if you're making propaganda, you know you're making propaganda. I, see, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the most powerful propagandist is one who believes their propaganda. Mm. I do, honestly. Yeah, I can see, I can see the I, point I, there. I just don't know how many people would fall into that category. Oh, I certainly... I, I think that Michael Moore is a true believer. That's my impression of him. I have absolutely no oh, doubt. Oh, I have absolutely no doubt that he believes what he's doing is right. I'm not... You're no. just not sure he believes what he's saying. Yeah, I, I, I think he... No, I think he must know that he is not representing the full truth. I'm... No. I, like, he, he might say, oh, well, this... this Like, um... Uh... The, the end goal of what I'm presenting here um, is right and true in that sort of sense, but in not pre presenting all the facts or, or putting things slightly out of context in certain instances, he yeah. must know what he's doing there, but he sees the end justifying the means. See... I I don't agree with that, and we will never reach a conclusion on this because it's unknowable. But <laughs> yeah. my view is that it's impossible to overestimate the power of uh, people believing what they want to believe and excluding facts. Confirmation bias yeah, is yeah. a super powerful psychological phenomenon. I try my best to you know uh, prevent my own um, tendencies in that respect. And it's actually, I mean, I'd recommend to anyone out there who's interested in this topic, I know this is a bit of a diversion, lesswrong.org where it's like basically a site devoted to understanding psychological research about the way that humans reason and increasing your awareness of innate biases and trying your best to combat those to get closer to the truth. And it's pretty cool. I mean, it's staffed by a lot of white male 
undiagnosed Asperger's sufferers, uh, but it's it's pretty cool. That does um, sound good. To get back to yeah, you know, okay, Snyder, right. All right, so um, uh, yeah, I think Michael Moore's pronouncements about him being a coward are just faintly ridiculous. Um, and I also, I mean, if you're in a war, if you just take away the morality of whether or not that that war is proper. Yeah, it's a very important strategic role yeah. in an army, and uh, I, it makes sense to have it. And what are you going to fucking do? Not uh, have uh, snipers? Yeah, like? uh, yeah. And I, um, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't think for a moment that the guy was a coward. Um, oh no, there's always the possibility of getting. Uh, I would zapped. think it was a, uh, you know, um, in that sense, you know, in that sense, uh, quite courageous. I do have my doubts about um, whether or not the guy's bloody sociopath, and See, a lot of what yeah. I've read. Of his, um, of him outside of the military, uh, seems to back that sort of thesis. Okay, so you um, would be talking about his book where he talks about shooting looters. Yeah, and during for, Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. And like the the thing that interested me about that is that um, by so, all by all uh, accounts, that didn't actually happen. Yeah, that is, it's provably, it's yeah, false. Like, like yeah, the, that's the thing. There are so many things that this guy has said that he's done outside of his military career because the, the confirmed kills are... Uh, yeah, it's on paper. Yeah. yeah. Um, that have been uh, uh, proven uh, or, yeah, proven false. Um, you know, punching Jesse Ventura, whoever the fuck that is. Yeah, um, see, the thing is, though, that that's a, that was a jury of his peers. Do you know what I mean? Apparently, it's not clear-cut that that actually didn't happen. It's just that the jury in the trial said that on the balance of probabilities, yeah. it didn't. And that's just not enough for me to be sure that it's a lie. But certainly... Yeah, but when you put it together with other things... Agree. Like the, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. the guy uh, seemed to have this... Um, oh, what was the other one? Um, oh, how he came home and there were people, um, you know, with signs saying baby killer and stuff like that. Apparently, that never happened. Right. Um, and uh, he just seems to be a guy who uh, saw himself as a hero and created like an ongoing narrative about how he could continue being a hero outside of the military. Um, yeah, well, I think that a problem for a lot of veterans is the search for meaning. Yeah. After you've been well, in fuck, a That's super... a problem for everyone. Sorry? That's a problem for everyone goes through that. Their I don't life. agree. I think it's a bigger problem for veterans who are caught up in the brotherhood of the military. They're accustomed to acting in the interests of the group rather than the individual. Um, everyone has existential crises, but I think that when you've been through um, an experience of that intensity, it's particularly difficult to take day-to-day day -day life seriously. Yeah. At least that's my experience of people who've been in those situations and returned to sort of, quote, normal society. And I think that that may, that may well have been a compensatory mechanism for that guy. But look, regardless of the veracity, there's no question that he killed a lot of people. There's yeah. no question that most Americans consider him a hero. And I think that that's really the essence of our discussion here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think I've actually spelled out yet why, like the main reason why I wouldn't go and see this movie. Yeah. Um, just uh, to try and distill it down to a sentence or two. Um, I, I basically don't have any interest in watching... A, um, watching a movie that uh, turns the Iraq War, which is one of the biggest fuck ups of Western civilization in you know the past it really 50 years. Is. Yeah, it really is. I um, mean, I'd rank it underneath World War One, but not yeah. far. But like, yeah, so like in the past fifty years, so going back to nineteen fifty, oh, okay, right? Yeah, yeah, going back to say. You know what's that? Nineteen sixty-five. Yeah. Can you think of Can you think of a bigger fuck up than the Iraq War? Yeah, Vet Vietnam. Uh, Higher casualties. I mean, they say three to five million Vietnamese killed, sixty thousand Americans. You know, yeah, it's, okay, it's, it's worse, but it's. I was like, sort of more. Th yeah, there's nothing else between them. I don't think. Yeah, I think it would. It comes in a strong second. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that. Uh, um, uh, well, I'm not pretty sure at all. I'm speaking out of my ass here, um, but in terms of ongoing troubles that it's causing. The world. We still don't uh, know yeah, the full I think effects. Because, yeah. I mean, what, you know, Vietnam was, uh, you know, terrible for America and for a lesser extent um, to, you know, Australia, um, who were all the way with LBJ on that one. Um, Thanks, Menzies, cunt. Yeah, what a dickhead. Um, 
Actually, was that Menzies or was it Holt? I thought it was Holt. I think Menzies got us into it initially. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Harold Holt who did the all the way with LBJ line. Though. Could well have been. Anyway, yeah. not so important. Um, uh, but I don't... Uh, off the top of my head, I wouldn't say that Vietnam had the uh, destabilising uh, ongoing effects for more parts of the world um, or even its immediate part of the world that um, Iraq has had for the Middle East. And well, everyone that's an interesting question. I mean, Especially when you consider things like the rise of ISIS. Yeah. The problem is we don't know what the full effects are going to be. Yeah. I mean, Vietnam was long enough ago that you understand the knock-on effects. Now, those yeah. also include, by the way, Cambodia and one of the largest or probably the second largest um, ethnic or second largest sort of mass Is that killings. really a knock-on effect of Vietnam? Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah. Definitely. It's well recognised that there's no way the Khmer Rouge would have um, gotten the power that they did had the Americans not been bombing the fuck out of Cambodia and destabilising the monarchy that ran it before the Khmer Rouge took over. So Yeah. yeah. I just remember reading somewhere that um, I think it was one of those economic arguments of history that it, yeah. uh, they would have taken over the monarchy at some point anyway. Who knows, um, man? It's unknowable. Anyway. But, I mean, it's well recognised historically that there was a huge causative link between what the Americans were doing and... Okay, for, okay, I will concede your point. The uh, Vietnam War was a bigger fuck-up for Western civilization. But I think, yeah, like... Uh, I'll but concede, it's still... Let me concede to the extent yeah. that we're not... We don't know. Yeah. So we're not sure. It's just that at this point, when you add up the absolute sum of effects of both things, I think the Vietnam War yeah. works. Anyway, back to, uh, back to why I wouldn't see American sniper. One of the biggest fuck-ups of Western civilization of the past 50 years, um, I just don't want to see a movie that... Um, uh, in a sense, glorifies it. And I know that it uh, apparently shows a lot of horrors of war and children getting shot and things like that. But at the end of the day, um, it's uh, it's a hero movie. It's a movie about... Uh, uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that um, Clint Eastwood has been pretty unabashed about this, that he sees the guy as, a, as an American hero. Certainly. And yeah. I, I have no interest in seeing... Um, a movie about such an appalling fuck-up where Americans and Western soldiers should never have been in the first place, um, presented as a good versus evil, righteous American hero story. Um, yeah. On the topic of war movies and enlistment, yeah, it's a well-recognised phenomenon by the military that no matter how nasty the war movie is in yeah. terms of its grit and its realism, and presenting, quote, the horrors of war, no matter how much it doesn't glorify war, and I think there are certain movies that you could um, put in that category. I thought Saving Private Ryan was pretty good at not glorifying war. Um, and it doesn't matter. The, the enlistment rate shoots through the roof. Yeah. It does not matter how nasty it is. And um, yeah. people just, uh, for whatever reason, an aggressive young male is attracted to the idea of that challenge. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree that there's this aspect of glorification, though, in this movie from all accounts. Um, I mean, the man is presented as a hero, and his job really, in many cases, is to kill very nasty people. And yeah. I agree that they're very nasty people. Um, but he's, he's a, a guy who did kill a lot of human beings. And seemed very happy about it, okay, by so all accounts. Like he's, he, he he's referred the, to it as fun. Yes, he referred um, to it as fun. He also, yes, he also, there's a certain relish about it. Yeah. But I think, and there is, especially in the interviews with the chap himself. Yeah. So while I suppose my biggest defense to the fact that I haven't seen the movie is the fact that I've watched interviews with this guy, um, quite a few of them, because he's an interesting looking character. Um, I think that virtually anyone can do virtually anything. That's my own theory of human behaviour. Given the right incentives, pressures, context, yeah. um, you can make anyone do virtually anything. So you've got a favourite quote on that one, right? Yeah, just on the, uh, the issue of, uh, of what people are capable of under certain circumstances. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it's a quote from Terry Pratchett from his book Small Gods. Um, and uh, anyone who's not a Terry Pratchett fan, he, um, uh, he's a comedic writer from Britain. Um, and uh, the quote is, there are hardly any excesses of the most crazed psychopath that cannot easily be duplicated by a normal, kindly family man who just comes into work every day and has a job to do. 
That's absolutely right. It, and this is close to Hannah Arendt's pronouncement on the banality of evil yeah. when she discussed the Holocaust. You really, in many cases, are dealing with a machine that has kind of just gone skew if and does really terrible things with the division of responsibility that happens at any kind of operation of scale. And this sort of weird disaggregation of responsibility for the activity. And that's how things like the Holocaust can happen, where you have, you know, arguably one of the most um, sophisticated societies that the world had seen at that time yeah. doing the thing that it did during World War II. So I just think that virtually is anyone is capable of what this guy did. Yeah. And he just had the capability to do it well. Yeah. Um, I draw a, um, another distinction with, uh, with that, though. Um, uh, another article I read this week, um, and it was, uh, it was in the, uh, the Age, which is a Melbourne paper, um, and it was about uh, Australia's deadliest sniper, a, a bloke by the name of Ian Robertson, who served in the, uh, the Korean War. Mm. Um, and back in the Korean War, they didn't have things like confirmed kills or anything like that. If you were a sniper, you basically just found a place to sit with your 303 rifle and pick people off. And, sure. Um, and so he, uh, he was asked, oh, did, did you keep count um, how many people you killed? And he said, no, I, I didn't want to. Um, the, the closest he came to that was one, uh, one day he'd spent the morning uh, picking people off, as he did every morning for months at a time. And then later that day, um, some ground troops came through, um, Australian or American, I can't remember, and uh, took over the enemy position that he'd been shooting at. Um, and he came up um, following them along. Um, and in the little uh, enclave that he'd been shooting at in the morning, there were 30 dead bodies there. Mm. And that was a morning's work for him. Mm. And he just, he said he, it, he, that never left him. And after that, he just, he refused to think about it after that. Um, so, I mean, uh, he, he didn't see it as fun. He could do it. That was his job. He was good at it. Um, uh, but it, um, it troubled him for the rest of his life. Um, sure. I mean, people naturally don't want to kill other people. I think, depending on the circumstances. If you put yeah, them in I the right circumstances. I think wanted to kill people. I think, it, I think Chris Kyle mm. wanted to kill people. But, okay, so I think this is such a difficult topic. First of all, the statistics are clear. Um, the majority of people, one of the biggest problems they have with recruits to an army, particularly drafted recruits, is actually making them want to kill people. Yeah. And um, I think that when you're in a situation where you don't yourself feel like your survival is at stake, you do not want to kill people. Um, and that's why the army does such a, a sort of intense training to, as they say, break down the civilian and rebuild him as a soldier because you need to um, hamper that natural human inclination not to kill people. But I think that when your survival is at stake, that anyone will kill. Um, and, you know, there are many sort of examples of that um, in literature and the like. Um, I wouldn't argue that for a second. That's a fairly well-established, um, fairly well-established thing that if you're a survival at stake, you'll kill. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, um, I suppose though. But this is the thing: when you're a sniper, I suppose this is where I'm leading. Yeah. When you're a sniper, your survival is not immediately threatened in the way that you are when you're on a front line. And this is where I think you can make an argument that the guy was sociopathic in the sense that he did a lot of killing without this kind of immediate threat to his own safety. Of course that threat was there, but I don't think it was there in a way that most people respond with a kind of survival-induced killing of another human being. Um, so the thing is, though, I'm not sure he was a sociopath. I'm not. Well, I wouldn't be able to say with any certainty, but... Uh, I, just, I didn't just get from, that just sense from, from him. Just from... Um, yeah, uh, I, all, I've, read, um, I've read interviews and things. I haven't actually seen any of the live ones that you've seen on, on YouTube. But just, um, he, he certainly sort of gives off a bit of a sociopathic vibe to me from what I've See, read. See, what you're worried about, though, is the enjoyment. Yeah. Okay, and I think that the problem with using that as the sole criteria, not that you are, but as even like a heavily weighted factor, is that I think many people in wars enjoy aspects of it. I think that it's... There are certain human instincts that lend themselves to the game mm -hmm. of it, um, the sort of the adrenaline and the high of um, having your life at risk. Yeah. Um, to this, I mean, my old man 
is a Vietnam veteran involved in many firefights in Vietnam. And to this day, as much as he dislikes discussing it and as much as he hates that he was involved in it, he was drafted, by the way, I should mention that, um, still when he talks about his favourite weapon, I can see his fingers kind of... There's a certain gleam in his eye. Yeah. Okay, when he talks about the M79, which was a small grenade launcher that they used to use, like a sawn-off shotgun. And yeah. he, I can tell he loves that weapon. He loved to use it and that he derived a real satisfaction from blowing people up with that weapon, right? Regardless of the sort of, I mean, but what we need to acknowledge here is that humans have conflicting impulses. Yeah. It's an important part of our psyche. We can love and hate things at the same time. And people who are looking for unified theories where everything fits together neatly and doesn't overlap in terms of repulsion and attraction are on a fool's errand, in my opinion. Yeah. I can, um, I can definitely see how people would love being in the military. Um, the camaraderie, um, you know, sense of belonging and brotherhood. Sure. And also, if you're actually in, um, you know, in a war, I have never been, don't particularly ever want to be, um, but I am just in, you know, my own personal life, a bit of an adrenaline junkie at times. Mm. Um, I... I enjoy doing dangerous things because you get a kick out of it. Mm. Um, and I can see how uh, that'd be, you know, that'd be really enjoyable to um, to someone of that bet. Um, just with uh, Kyle though, I just can't shake the feeling that he's just a guy who wanted to kill people and found a way that he could do that many times for fun. Maybe. And, and again, I've got, I've got fuck all to back that up. It's just the feeling I get. <laughs> well, and there are definitely those people, and yeah. they come out to play in a war zone. Yeah. There's a family, well, a fam not really a family friend, but an old military buddy of my father who used to visit us. Um, it doesn't visit us, or at least I haven't lived at home for a long time, so I'm not sure if he still does. Uh, the guy shall remain nameless, but he was an excellent soldier, he killed a lot of people. He would volunteer for the shotgun roll at the front of the platoon moving through the bush, which most people tried to avoid. And he was just a really excellent soldier. And he saved the platoon that my father was in on a number of occasions. But he was, before he joined the military voluntarily to go to Vietnam, a mental health nurse who used to tell lots of what he considered hilarious stories about how he would torture the patients in the asylums that he Holy was shit. a mental nurse at, okay? Um, now, my old man had an affection for him because he saved his life on a few occasions. As you would. But very happy to admit that he's a total fucking sociopath. And, but he was a brilliant, brilliant soldier. And I think the two things overlap. Yeah, fair enough. So you might be right about it, but I also think that you can educate or you can turn someone who would not naturally be into that um, and, and make them that way through training. Um, I got no specifics to back that up, but I saw in the Middle East on a number of occasions people who I could see just being an accountant or a lawyer or whatever kind yeah. of boring profession you can think of. But in that context, there were certain skills and abilities they had that just were turned in a different direction. And it was not so much that they were predisposed to, to hate human beings and want to kill them, so much as they had a capability. And capabilities will always find an outlet. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it's not even that they were bad or nasty people, it's just that they had a talent. And I, I, so I suppose I'd bring that to leaven my view of this guy. He had a talent. So is he innately a bad human or would anyone who had that talent be drawn in that direction? Oh, I think uh, anyone who had that talent would be drawn in that direction. Um, I'm not talking about a talent of killing people. I'm talking about marksman, sneaky, yeah, all of the uh, right strategic skills for a sniper. Yeah. You think? Um, so if, you, uh, you know, if, that was, if they found themselves in the military. Yeah. yeah. So um, imagine but, you were drafted. Yeah. If you were a fantastic marksman, you had a really good strategic sense of how to move around and duel with 
the other side snipers, yeah. do you think that you would be attracted in that direction? Um, I think I'd probably find myself put in that direction, uh, snipers generally. Like they pick people out and put them there. Um, uh, into those positions as uh, if they're suited to it. Um, but I understand what you're asking. Um, uh, and yeah, because you would, um, you, you'd be, you're in a situation where you want to be as useful as you can um, to your to your cause. To yeah, your, and absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, saw, he saw himself in the interviews, the very strong theme is, he said, I was there to take lives, to save lives. And do you want it to be them or do you want it to be us. Yeah. And his calculation on the micro scale there is not incorrect. When you're in that situation and you obliterate all of the context and the fact that, well, should we even be here, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. If you assume that the Americans were doing the right thing in Iraq, and that's an arguable position that a lot of people agree with, even if, even if I disagree with it, then it just comes down to a question at that point of, well, them or us. And, you know, there's an argument to be made that if you take as given what he believed, then what he did was very reasonable, even desirable. And so, I mean, while I completely disagree with it and I find it completely abhorrent and I'm scared of a society that glorifies it, at the same time, it's kind of an inevitable outcome if you take certain assumptions as given. Um, and I suppose this brings me back because we haven't really spoken about the movie for a while. Um, yeah, true. My problem with the movie is that it takes those assumptions as given. Yeah. Um, from what I've uh, from what I've read about it, reviews and things like that, there is fuck all in the way of uh, questioning of America's uh, role there in the first place, um, and any sort of question of complexities of that nature are just lacking from it. So I mean, why wouldn't you? What you you. Uh, haven't actually said yet why you aren't seeing the movie or haven't seen it. Because I completely disagree with the Iraq War. Yeah. And I do think that ultimately a thing like this makes it more likely for people to make the same mistakes when it shapes their thinking by taking as given assumptions that I completely disagree with. Yeah. Um, so while, you know, I've made a lot of pronouncements here about why I get how people end up thinking like this. Yeah. Because it's weird. We live in a civilised society. And to get to a place where you see an interview like the one I saw, where you had a Christian pastor in what's called the Fellowship Church in America, interviewing Chris Kyle in front of a religious Christian congregation and glorifying what he did yeah. and calling him a hero. It's just a really strange thing to end up there. And I suppose I just am really concerned about the human ability to go in the wrong direction. Yeah. When you take arguable assumptions as a given, or you have certain opinions, if you, if you place those opinions in a certain context, you can end up in some scary fucking places. Um, so that's the reason I'm not going to see it, even yeah. if I really, really want to understand the propaganda. I, <laughs> I do. Yeah. Um, but a guy like this I also well, don't have an interest in going and seeing a movie that is a piece of propaganda. Like I'm interested in propaganda as a um, as a tool that uh, that is used, but I also don't want to go and give them my money. Um, well, that's exactly my yeah. problem with it. Like the thing is, though, that propaganda is so interesting, and yeah. to understand the psychology of these people, I mean, I consider them sort of basically people I disagree with on really a lot of stuff, but it's good to understand someone that you don't agree with. Yeah. Um, all the better to try and convince them that you're correct and maybe even to have your own opinion swayed to some extent. Uh, anyway, we've, we've ended up talking a lot longer on this we point have. than we expected. So why don't we flip off the death penalty stuff yeah, we'll and go. talk Saudi King Abdullah. Yeah. It was King Abdullah. That's his name. Yeah. It? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and uh, I suppose, where do we start with this? Do we start with um, how the West loves Saudi Arabia and they really shouldn't or... Uh, that's a good stuff. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, just the background, the news aspect of this is that King Abdullah, um, head of the Saudi royal family and the guy who runs Saudi, or ran Saudi Arabia, hmm. um, died. He's been in ill health for a while. I think since 2010, he basically hasn't yeah. governed the country. Uh, and the acting monarch now is the guy who took over. So there was a clear succession plan. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any trouble 
in the ranks so far as the transfer of power is concerned. Um, and President Obama is going to cut short a trip elsewhere in the world and um, fly through Saudi Arabia to uh, provide his condolences to the Saudi royal family and to meet and um, talk with the, uh, the new king. So Saudi Arabia, I mean, to globally get a sense of this country, yeah. uh, they derive their legitimacy from being guardians of the holy places, i.e. Yeah. Mecca and Medina, yeah. which is where Muhammad uh, started and started his life and preached um, Islam. Yeah, and you tie that with um, some more sort of real politic power of just being backed by vast oil reserves and the riches That's that come it. with that. Yeah. Um, so so it's, a, it's an interesting sort of combination of religious and economic influence. It is. The economic influence they have is main, it's not so much centred about, like it is, of course, on the oil. It's not really, though, in absolute terms based on what they produce so much as the power they have over the oil price. Um, because the oil price is such an important economic um, indicator and um, it has a lot of real-world impacts. So the Americans have, I suppose, been coddled up with the Saudis since, um, you know, the 50s, really. Yeah. So regardless of how abhorrent they are, they're an important strategic ally. Yeah. And just uh, a couple of points on how abhorrent they are. Um, just, uh, just an article. The government, by the way, not yes, the people. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, um, article from the International Business Times talking about human right to, rights abuses in the reign of King Abdullah. Mm. Um, uh, last year, some uh, some laws were introduced, um, basically making someone a terrorist if they call for uh, atheist thought in any form or calls into question the fundamentals of the Islamic religion. Um, you're, uh, you're you're a terrorist and can be. Um, well, put in jail, mm. lashed, mm. Uh, depending on how how uh, badly you've uh, swayed, I suppose. Um, uh, at least 76 people from um, just January 2014 to November 2014 were, uh, were executed um, for everything from murder to infidelity or homosexual acts. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, yeah, this just keeps going and going. Executions with um, by beheading, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And um, in many cases in a, a stadium. Yeah. That's also worth keeping in mind. I mean, it's medieval shit. Yeah. Now, it's not like the West didn't have that kind of caper. The public execution is a well-worn event. Yeah, um, it, was, uh, yeah. it was public entertainment for centuries. Certainly. Um, but you, yeah. And it's not to say, so it's not to say that we didn't do the same stuff. It's just that where we've evolved past that yeah and in my opinion we're better than them because we have yeah. it's, it's that simple in my opinion at least um i think that you have to at some point assert superiority and you know while i think that you know they'd be just as civilized as us if they'd grown up the way we grew up and had the education and the advantages we had which yeah. they haven't you know this is not an innate superiority argument it is just an argument that our culture is superior yeah i um uh, you'll probably have various people going, oh, you can't say that, you can't say that. But yeah, I'm not a believer in yeah. cultural relativism, yeah. having lived in the Middle East. That I, um, particular point of view that I held before I lived there departed uh, during various incidents that I found very confronting. Yeah, I, I don't... Um, I, I, and I think the, uh, the distinction you drew there about it not being an innate superiority, but... Um, what, what, what would you call it? A superior... Cultural. Yeah, cultural It's just a cultural superiority. superiority. Yeah. I think that is a fair enough point to make. I mean, if you're talking about a place that is going to behead someone for uh, a, a homosexual yeah. act or is okay with um, a woman being stoned to death because she was raped um, and that makes her that's it. Now, if unfaithful. You, if you consider that, and there's an argument to be made that that's not cultural, but if you say that's cultural, and that's my opinion, that that's a cultural phenomenon, hmm. and in our culture we don't do that, yeah. then one thing is clearly superior to the other. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, we are culturally superior to them. They need to catch the fuck up to us. Yeah. And uh, drawing it back to King Abdullah and the Saudi royal family and government, um, 
they're the ones who were pushing that. Um, really? Well, it's so this is complex. Okay, the monarchy in Saudi Arabia is famously corrupt. Yeah, they are famously westernized as well. Well, I mean that's the I, I, that's the other thing which I hate it, like the hypocrisy of it. Yes, but they're placating a religious establishment that sits beneath them. So, I mean, they are. I think in many cases completely westernized they've been educated in the west they're rich they're flying around in jumbo jets with yeah. hookers and coke um and they don't truly believe it but they are placating a powerful religious establishment that is necessary for them to continue in power this is my question on that um that powerful religious element uh they must surely be fully aware of what the uh, yes. monarchy are, is up to as well yes um so i mean but they're making they're, a pragmatic calculation that provided we're allowed to apply strict Islamic law, even if... To everyone corrupt, who's below us. That's uh, it, yeah. Even if the people yeah. who allow us to do that are corrupt, we are still pursuing the ends um, advocated by our creator, Allah, and that is um, a worthwhile compromise to make until we are able to overthrow... You know, I'm sure they have ideas about overthrowing the monarchy, and this is actually why the Saudi monarchy is such a fantastic ally against terrorism because the fundamentalists in the religious, establish, religious establishment are in many cases um, allied with what we would consider to be terrorists. The terrorists, I mean, Bin Laden is really, he was really a phenomenon of the religious establishment's dissatisfaction with the corrupt monarchy. Yeah. Um, he was, he came from a wealthy Saudi family and he was disgusted with how they operated, and he didn't consider that compromise worthwhile, which is why he became a terrorist. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, in many cases, like, you can actually really make the argument that sort of worldwide jihadism, as it currently presents itself, originated from corrupt rulers of Arab countries that fermented really profound dissatisfaction amongst the, the ranks of the faithful. Who, who found themselves toiling beneath that yoke. Um, so, you know, thanks Saudi Arabia for being done. <coughs> we appreciate that, not fuck sticks. Um, and the others who are really to blame for that are the Egyptians. Yeah. Um, there were many, many members of Al-Qaeda that came out of Egyptian prisons, having been sodomized with broomsticks. And you end up pretty radical when that kind of shit happens to you. There's a strong argument to be made that the reason that jihadism exists at all is because there were so many people who were treated so badly and their psychology so sort of ruined Shattered. irrevocably <laughs> that they became terrorists and that were then able to attract other people to that cause who had not kind of been communicated the mind disease that they had been through the way they were treated by Western-backed um, Arab rulers. Um, I'm not going anywhere else with that. So, in terms of Saudi Arabia, I think it's pretty terrible, but let's talk about ISIS. Okay. That's a fascinating sort of conundrum that the Saudis find themselves in, because you have there... Um, a Sunni extremist group. Yes, a Sunni extremist group. Their forebears were heavily funded by the Saudis, actually. Yep in the sense that Saudi Arabia, during the Iraq Civil War, considered that the radical Sunnis in Iraq were their natural proxies, yeah. funded them with a lot of money. That has obviously over time gotten out of control and you now have ISIS running rampant. And ISIS has stated very clearly that they want to take control of the holy places from an illegitimate whore to the West. Yeah. That is the current Saudi regime. And I don't think that there's not a lot of support for that from other conservative Sunni Muslims. Well, this is the thing. I mean, the uh, the Saudi monarchy have just been so corrupt and so hypocritical that I can't imagine a poor, you know, Sunni resident of uh, anywhere in the Middle East who's aware of that and who wouldn't think in the back of my mind, fuck them. Um, Honestly, I would think that. I mean, I already kind of think that, and I'm a Westerner. Yeah. 
I mean, to be honest, I'm not going to, it would be a scary phenomenon for ISIS to take control of that oil wealth. And strategically, oh, it would be an absolute disaster. Yeah. But I'm not going to be shedding tears over the Saudi monarchy at all. Um, so, I mean, they're actually in the process of building a fucking wall, like a serious, like thousands of kilometers long fortification against ISIS because yeah. they are terrified. And the other interesting thing about Saudi Arabia is Saudi Arabia has always been terrified of being overrun. And there are many analysts who think that their statistics on population are just completely fabricated <laughs> because they they want to appear to be a larger population than they actually are. So that interesting. they can actually like, they can pretend they can raise a larger standing army than they can against anyone who threatens them. Um, so Iran has always been their bugaboo. Yeah. That's who they are always terrified of. But now they're yeah. actually concerned about ISIS. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's a bit of a scary time for the world if you think about it in the sense that um, if, uh, if Saudi Arabia gets invaded by ISIS forces, does America send in troops to help them? I think they And what would. the fuck does that do to the Middle East? I think they would, although there are no American troops now stationed in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, which but, was seen, which was seen by many as essentially a concession to Al Qaeda. Like one of the greatest demands yeah. Bin Laden made was, was for the removal of um, yeah. American troops from a country that was host to the Islamic holy places. Yeah. And the Americans quietly withdrew their troops from Saudi Arabia, uh, I think it was like 2010 yeah. or so. Um, so, I mean, what, and you know more about this than I would, but for your, your standard, um, you know, Arab in the street of... Uh, the Arab street, as it's famously called. Yeah, if... Um, a proxy for sort of just Arab opinion, basically. Yeah, if, if ISIS tries to invade Saudi Arabia and take control of the holy places. Yeah. And Saudi Arabia calls on American support and American troops are killing, uh, you know, killing uh, Muslims. I don't think there's any question on, that America would intervene yeah. with ground troops. I mean, fuck, but America's would, but already... Would people... Uh, sorry, um, just to finish the question. Mm. Would you... Would people... Would people be more upset... Um, by ISIS invading a you know fellow Muslim, fellow Sunni country, um, and trying to take control of the holy places, than they would be of Americans killing Muslims to protect those places. I suppose is my like how big of a like how big of a thing could that blow up into? I suppose is what I'm trying to get. To. So the Arab Street. Look, and I always caveat this. I lived in the Middle East, but I lived in the occupied territories. So I can only speak to the people who live there. Yeah. Certainly, they would, with reservations, the majority of them, I think, would be on the side of ISIS against the United States yeah. um, and Saudi Arabia. Because while the Palestinians actually receive enormous gobs of money from the Saudi Arabians um, through NGOs, they, there are very few Palestinians that consider the Saudi Arabians to have any legitimacy. In fact, there are very few people in the Arab world I met that didn't hate the Saudi monarchy. So, I mean, they're considered just to be a whore of the West, really. And that's kind of, that's actually the nomenclature that's, got, that's used to describe them. They are a Western whore. Um, so, I think that at least from the people that I knew in a pretty conservative Muslim city, the, the thing is, you've got to distinguish between being on the side of and having sympathies of, yeah. too. So they would really have sympathies for the, um, for the ISIS guys. And the other thing that's worthwhile keeping in mind is historical connection between Saddam Hussein and the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. uh, the Palestinians considered Saddam a great advocate of their cause. I actually have a poster of Saddam looking heroic that I bought from an Arab street vendor. <laughs> I don't know where that is now, but it's kind of funny. I never showed it to you. It's, <laughs> I got some interesting paraphernalia while I was there. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah, I think that there would be certain sympathies, like at least amongst the Palestinians, yeah. they'd be pretty keen on ISIS doing some damage, although I'm sure many of them find what ISIS do abhorrent. Yeah. What a, a question that I find interesting, and I don't really expect to come up with an answer to this one because um, I don't have the faintest idea, and it's a bit outside of your sort of agreement as well. Um, 
is what would Shiite countries like Iran make of it? Um, because obviously, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia, long-standing enmity, um, but also uh, Iran terrified of ISIS just as much, really. Um, yeah, Iran are scared of ISIS. I mean, look, I think that it basically, if I was Iranian, I'd be happy to watch my enemies go at each other with baseball bats. Yeah, but I mean... Provided be, one of them didn't really kick the other one's ass. Yeah, as in, would it be worse for Iran if uh, ISIS had control of the holy places and suddenly got all that religious... Yeah, it would be terrible for yeah. Iran. I mean, so, I mean, they... Strategically... Could, could you see a world where, <laughs> where Iran was maybe not uh, openly helping, but trying to offer, like, uh, behind-closed-doors support to America... Um, in defeating ISIS in the Middle East, which that'd be an interesting sort of yeah. world. Um, I think that's already happening. Yeah, there's news reports to the effect that the Iranians and the Americans are collaborating to some extent against ISIS. Okay, I hadn't actually read any of those, but yeah. I, I, it was a thought that came to mind, and it made sense. Everybody um, is scared of yeah. ISIS. They're, they're basically the kind of the one bunch of people that everyone doesn't like, and the Amer the sort of. Middle Eastern politics is famous for making strange bedfellows. <laughs> um, you know, another great example of that is you've got these like really strong alliances between the Shiite and essentially Catholic militias in Lebanon. You know, because, like there are just really strange bedfellows in that part of the world because yeah. there's always these shifting alliances. That's right. We watched a documentary on that, didn't we? Like the guys from Hezbollah and the uh, um, the Christians. Yeah. Did we? I think so. Uh, I don't I, remember I, watching I the documentaries. It. I've come across a few people who are of um, Christian extraction who are big fans of Hezbollah, yeah. and which is always a strange kind of thing to encounter, but it, it's a thing. It's <laughs> a, a thing. Um, anyway, so Saudi Arabia, I suppose, the point that we're making here is that they are really shitty people so far as the uh, monarchy is concerned. Yeah. And that you essentially have a fairly placid population that's been bought off with oil wealth. Ultimately, that's the game there. Yeah. Everyone gets virtually everything for free. Poverty's not a huge problem because there's so much oil cash floating around. Um, but uh, God help you if you um, write a blog criticising uh, anything about the monarchy or Islam, though. Yeah, I mean, there was the, there's actually been a recent famous example of that, yeah. a guy who was condemned to a thousand lashes, and they're going to be administered, um, I think it's like every week yeah. over a period of months because basically if you lashed someone a thousand times, they would just die. Yeah. They don't want to kill him, but they do want to administer the lashes. So they have to do it over a period of months where they basically let him heal yeah. up somewhat. And the hypocrisy of Western leaders, you know, the outcry over the attack on free speech in, uh, in Charlie Hebdo in France, while at the same time... All of them crying crocodile te tears over the death of King Abdullah when... Yeah, it's gross, like, It's disgusting. It's gross. Like, let's, let's just uh, make the point that um, we've talked a lot about the hypocrisy of the uh, <laughs> the Saudi monarchy, but Jesus Christ, there's a lot of it in the West too. And there's no um, question, and I don't know why Obama feels like he has to go there. I feel like you should really just do it with your ambassador. Hold your nose... And do the ambassador, but why do you have to have the quote leader of the free world cuddling up to these fucking disgraceful human beings? Yeah, it's just genuinely shit. It people. really does damage to our credibility, <laughs> like as the West, generally yeah. speaking, um, on the Arab street. Man. Yeah. I mean, none of them are under any illusions about how shitty the Saudis are. And I mean, there are various just strategic necessities that sometimes are kind of gross, but. It seems like this is overkill. Like this is sort yeah, of there's an overconcession, too much concession to this kind of. I mean, do you think there's anything to it in that the uh, the Saudis, uh, and when I say the Saudis, I'm obviously talking about um, you know the the monarchy and the top echelon there um, have historically been uh, you know big supporters of the Bushes and the Republicans. Um, do you think there's any sort of American political uh, motivations um, to uh, to Obama going over there and trying to weasel a bit more oh. Democrat support for the, from H them? Historically, or? there have been more links between the Republicans and, yeah. or the Republican executive people and the Saudi that's, monarchy. Yeah, yeah, that's my point. So is is I don't is, know. He, is he trying to suddenly is he trying to get a bit of you know democratic 
party <sighs> influence over there. I don't know. Mate. I, I couldn't tell. Or at least some, if not influence, then a bit of uh, good. It's a possible. A bit of good feeling for them or something. I don't know. It's possible, but they're less important now than they were the Saudis. Um, although, uh, really, they are considered a pretty important bulwark against ISIS. My view on why Obama's going is essentially because the chaos of the Middle East is as it is right now, yeah. and America needs a strong ally and one that is sort of um, that the relationship is good with to deal with ISIS. Uh, it would be an absolute strategic disaster if Saudi Arabia was overrun by ISIS. Because the kind of the crazy thing is that, weirdly, if ISIS did overrun Saudi Arabia, it's like the population's already accustomed to living under ludicrously strict Islamic law. Yeah. Um, so far as they were concerned, uh, they'd probably just consider that they'd have less corrupt rulers. Yeah, I mean, it would, that's, a, that's an interesting point. In terms of the conditions they'd be living under and the laws that they'd be living under, Same. wouldn't make much of a fucking difference. No, I mean, it would probably interesting, be worse, yeah, but, but not much worse. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's conceivable. Um, the Saudi establishment is not strong. Anyway, so that's a scary prospect. I hope that doesn't happen for the sake of everyone else in that region. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've, uh, we've pretty much got through our, uh, our normal uh, allotment of time. There are a few other things that we kind of wanted to speak on, like the death penalty. And um, I thought an interesting topic might have been um, uh, just heading back to Ukraine, which we haven't spoken about for a while. Um, but Russian soldiers uh, who apparently aren't there or haven't been there for months, um, now that uh, enough of them have actually died there when they're not supposed to be there, Russian families back... Uh, back home asking questions and being told they just volunteered. But maybe that'll be for next week. Yeah, yeah. I think things are going to develop. Yeah. Um, so look, that's that. Uh, here ends our podcast. We'll see you all next week. And the other thing is we really enjoy getting feedback from anyone who's listening. Um, so do feel free to mail us or email us on mail at patandrodsavetheworld.com. Just, uh, just quickly on that, um, we did get a little bit of feedback on the last podcast, yeah. uh, which I forgot to mention, uh, and, uh, and you, uh, you disagreed with it. I had a bit of a look into it this week. Um, a mate of mine, Carson, g'day Carson if you're listening, um, about, uh, about artificial intelligence, which I really enjoyed that, uh, that discussion we had last week about yeah, it was that. Interesting. Um, and, um, uh, and Carson was basically making the point um, that uh, a lot of the AI that we were talking about and that has been in the news um, where we're pretty much getting to the point of human consciousness in a machine, um, he wasn't really... Uh, what? No I, no, I don't think anything's getting close to human consciousness. No, but that was the hypothetical we were talking about. Yeah, if yeah. it's possible. Yeah, yeah right. Um, yeah. No, sorry, I thought you said that like we're talking about AI that exists that's no. coming close to human consciousness. No, because that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, that's what I was <laughs> just checking. Okay. Um, anyway, um, uh, and he was sort of saying like, um, and I mean that was the uh, that's what people like you know Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk were saying would be a great danger to the human race. Sure. Yeah. Um, and he, and Carson was making the point that um, these guys probably aren't experts on this. It's not their field of. Uh, um, of expertise, mm. um, and I actually read a few articles during the week of uh, of other people making that exact point. Like mm. these are um, you know very intelligent guys, mm. um, but uh, you know um, artificial intelligence isn't something that they're experts in. Absolutely, um, and uh, and the idea that um, the sort of AI that they're talking about being a danger to people isn't something that is even remotely likely. Um, so any media or outlets. Taking that, um, taking that to uh, create a headline, are basically talking out of their ass. Um, and, uh, and I think Carson had it'd be like um, uh, an astrophysicist or something uh, telling a geologist that terraforming is easy. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I see that point of view. At the same time, though, there are many, many artificial intelligence experts who do think it's eminently possible. So, I mean. What I'd say in response is that basically Hawking and um, Musk, while they're not experts in the area, they are piggybacking on the research and opinions of people who are experts in the field. 
Um, that said, though, there is really an open argument about whether or not it's possible. Yeah, I personally think that. And in the end, in, in, yeah, and in the know, end of the day, it's an interesting. Uh, it was an interesting hypothetical discussion. Yeah, no question, um, no question. Well, thanks for feedback. Um, and anyone else who's got any feedback on anything we say, be it positive, fault, uh, negative, uh, you know, feel free to email us on mail at patandrodsavetheworld.com. Yeah. See or, you all uh, next week. Or on Twitter, at yeah. Roderick Makem. Or... <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, see you, peeps. See ya.